Welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast. This is your host, Tim Ferrara. We are a member of the Edify Podcast Network. Download the Edify app and find more great Christian podcasts today. This podcast is designed around helping you keep your eyes on Jesus, even if it's in a 45-minute or 30-minute chunk. The goal of this podcast is to help you get closer to Christ, and I pray that it is doing that as you listen to these episodes. I want to thank my supporters on Patreon and also Faithful. You can go to faithful.place and get my exclusive video series. I'm going through my 90-day devotional, Eyes on Jesus, right now. You cannot get these video clips anywhere else. Well, I hope you are as excited for this season as I am. I had two amazing interviews to start, Max Lucado and Bob Goff, and now another awesome interview with John Tyson. I really love his books, Beautiful Resistance, The Intentional Father. We're going to talk about those as well as his heart for revival. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. This show is about you and your walk with Jesus as we grow in discernment together so that we can make better daily decisions that honor God in all we do. We will align all things against the Bible and give you practical steps to run your Christian race to win. And now your host, the discerning dad, Tim Ferrara. Welcome to the podcast. My guest this week is John Tyson. John is a pastor and church planter in New York City. Originally from Australia, John moved to the U.S. 20 years ago with a passion to seek and cultivate renewal in the Western church. He's the author of multiple books, including The Bird in His Light, Beautiful Resistance, and his newest book, The Intentional Father. For the last 15 years, John has lived in Manhattan with his family. He serves as the lead pastor of Church of the City, New York. John, welcome to the program. How are you? What's up, mate? How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. And it's great to chat with you today. Awesome. Yeah, I just read Beautiful Resistance. I'm working on Intentional Father right now. I'm excited to talk about that. But tell everyone a little bit more about anything you'd like to share about You know, your history. When did you become a Christian? Anything about your family you'd like to share? Yes. So I'm, I'm married. I've been married for 23 years. Uh, I'm, so I've actually been in the US for 24 years now, which nice. blows my mind. Um, I met my wife in Bible college uh, when we were uh, a freshman year, actually. And I've been married 23 years. I have a son who's 21. He's over at YWAM Kona right now, drinking mm. from that very, very deep well. Mm. I have a daughter uh, who's in nursing school in uh, college. So we're empty nesters now, which is something we're trying to figure out, but we're having a lot of fun figuring it out. Um, I moved to New York 16 years ago um, uh, to start uh, a church and have planted a few churches over the years. Love it here. It's definitely our home. Um, I became a Christian in a little bit of a Pentecostal youth revival in Australia. This Mm. was an Assemblies of God church called Paradise Assemblies of God. Now it's called Influences Church. And the guy who led me to Christ is a guy named Russell Evans, and he leads a church called Planet Shakers. Mm. So, you know, sort of like the big Pentecostal churches, the ones they really called out my destiny, gave me a vision of the kingdom of God and the beauty of Jesus. So I'm grateful for that. I've tried to carry that fire to this day. That's really cool. I love that. And a lot of what you focus on is reviving churches and, and kind of bringing some of that passion. And what have you seen in just the culture of New York? I've never been there personally, but how has that been for you uh, having a church in New York in, in kind of that, um, I'm guessing, busy culture? You know, how have people been receptive to kind of the message of, of your church? And I'm sure it's mixed, but, you know, just a kind of a general theme of maybe just American church or maybe specifically where you're at that kind of what, what are you passionate about right now? 
Well, I would say, I mean, you know, when you think of New York City, and by the way, you've got to come visit, mate. You would love it. It's a really an amazing place. Yeah. But um, a lot of people think, oh, New York, it's like it's, uh, it's an evil place. It's a dark place. It's resistant to God. There's a lot of godless culture. And I think in some large level that's true at the, at the ideological level, but it's filled with people. People are made in the image of God. People mm. are made to know God and glorify God. Yeah. And so you often find behind all the busyness and the behavior are these profound, deep longings where people are actually hungry for something more than just pleasure or success. Yeah. And that is the good news of Jesus. You know, at the end of John's gospel, he says, I write these things that you may believe Jesus is the son of God and in believing find life in his name. Mm. And so my experience has been that people are finding life in Jesus' name. And many of them are quite surprised that that's where life is actually located. So it's a real joy. Um, we love it here. And, yeah, large-scale resistance but personal responsiveness is probably how I'd sum up what mm. 16 years of ministry has been like. That's that's a good point where, you know, even if you look at a culture or a country, for for example, you know, it doesn't it doesn't negate the fact that an individual needs a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, yeah. sometimes we yeah. eliminate the fact of, Oh well, you know, we we group everyone together and, and we have to be careful not to do that because the yeah. person down the street, no matter what the culture looks like at the time, needs Jesus just as much as the next person. And I think it's easy to forget that. And especially as things get worse, you know, whether it's persecution or just, you know, financial burdens or uh, economy or threat of war, whatever that might be, those are scenarios where that's even more where people start to wake up, you know. You look back yes. at yeah. yeah, it's totally true. It activates, we're sort of, our complacency and comfortability is shattered. All of the illusions disappear and you're left with like your mortality and your yeah. need. And and uh, yeah, so actually COVID, you know, pastoring in New York uh, during COVID and the pandemic and uh, the the racial tensions and everything that's connected there, it's, you've actually seen people say there must be more to life than just this. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's 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 hope. Even if things are looking bad, we still have we have the hope of eternity, and we want to share that with everyone else. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. So the show being about discernment, I, I want to ask you a question. But this is also going to be focused on season three, which is uh, specifically discerning uh, when things don't go as planned, which happens a lot. But I want to see if you can think about a time in your life when you when you made a decision and you got on this path, and maybe it was either the wrong path or it was the right path, but you also faced a lot of struggles by being on that path and how you kind of knew it was God, or maybe you had to kind of backpedal a little bit and seek God for discernment. Um, can you think of a time in your life when you really had to go before God and, and seek wisdom and discernment uh, to kind of make sure you were on that right path of what God was leading you to do? Yeah, I mean, and honestly, mate, I feel like the last 18 months, I mean, that's been what I've done every day. Yeah. It's been very hard to navigate um, all the cultural issues. So we had the election, we had COVID, we had Black Lives Matter movement, and then now you've got vaccine. There's so many controversies. And you're trying to stay out of the cultural fray. Mm. And you're trying to ask, Lord, number one, uh, you know, what does your word say? Number two, what's your will in this situation? Number three, like what's the what season or timing is it right now that helps me interpret those things? And then how do I do it? We'll make sure my, my motivations are based in love and not just fear or self-preservation. So, yeah, man, I could honestly give you, I, I would just say pastoring through the pandemic is yeah. that. And it's been on steroids. You're always asking, what's the wise way? What's the godly way? Spirit, what are you saying? Help, lead us. Mm. So in some sense, though, I wouldn't want to relive what we've been through. I'm grateful for the dependence on the voice of the Spirit uh, that's mm. been you know, basically required during this season. 
That's really good because a lot of times if we can do things on our own strength, we're not relying on God. And so that's what God has kind of impressed upon me mm. recently is mm. to what am I asking for from God that doesn't require my knowledge, my abilities, mm. Mm. because if I just do the things that are comfortable that I've always done, I'm going to get the results mm. I've always gotten. Yeah. And so if we want change, if we want something different, we have to do things differently. And a lot of times that requires relying on God for things that are greater than just what my hands can do. Uh, and so when we're only doing things that are comfortable, that w- we really have to question, what is the vision God has for us? And, and how do I pursue that out of my comfort zone uh, into an area that is wholly dependent upon him? And that's mm-hmm. a great example, like to, to pastor mm-hmm. in New York during a pandemic, you have to be completely dependent on him and you have to keep your eyes on Jesus every single day yeah. because you get distracted yeah. by anything and everything that if you let it, and that's why uh, it was so important for me to, to, to write my devotional eyes on Jesus. And I love asking everybody too, you know, what, what do you do on a practical level to keep your eyes on Jesus every day? Because even if we don't have the exact same routine as other people, we can learn from kind of the patterns and the, the ways that we keep Jesus top of mind. Yeah, for for myself, I mean, I'm a, you know, Jesus, it says in Mark's gospel, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a solitary place and prayed. Mm. And that's basically been my practice. Um, So I start by, you know, getting my my heart, soul, mind, strength focused on God, turning my, uh, the gaze of my soul towards him, meditate through God's word, have a time of worship, read some devotional literature. But what? But but often, I mean, you've probably experienced this too. You can have like, and and honestly, that normally takes me maybe an hour and a half. It's not. I'm not rushing through it. I'm not like, you know what? Let me just like read a verse and say a prayer and then head out. I'm trying to like marinate my soul in the love of Jesus, mm. the goodness of God. But I'll I'll say this. Um, sometimes I leave after even a profound encounter with God and awareness of his presence, you know, the reality of the Holy Spirit, truth from his word that's leapt out of the page and touched my heart. And two minutes in, I could be walking through the city and get angry at someone and it's like it never happened. <laughs> and so I always remember, um, I think it's an example that Pete Scazzaro originally gave, um, but he talked about um, how sometimes in the Dakotas, the blizzards would be so bad that farmers going from their house to their barns to get supplies a couple of days into a blizzard would actually die because they couldn't even find their way because the snow was so intense. And mm. he said, so what they would do is they would tie a rope before the storm from the barn to their house and then tie themselves to the rope so they could navigate that. And it's and, and his, his point is literally sometimes the blizzard of our lives, whether it's the busyness, the pace, the problems, the, the spiritual attack, can be so great that if we don't have something that helps us see through it, we'll forget God in the midst of it. And so mm. to me, it's that, it's that, like David says, I think it's in Psalm 16, 8, I've set the Lord always before me, therefore I will not be shaken. And so you have to bring God multiple times a day into your consciousness, give him your attention and your focus, not just in one morning devotion, but throughout the day. So yeah, the, what the, the, the classic phrase is practicing the presence of God. Mm. How do I turn my mind towards him? And to me, managing our consciousness, making sure that he is set before us is the art of walking with Jesus, not just one block in the morning. So that's something I'm really focusing on right now. That's great. And that's also, I think about that rope having a way back because 
it's not going to be perfect. We're going to go and, and get on social media. We're going to get mad at the people in, in uh, the traffic, you know, next to us. And, yeah. and so how do we make it back to that place instead yeah. of being caught up in that moment, instead of being letting days go by. And I think that intentionality is so important and not just yeah. letting life happen to you, but being yes, proactive yes. about your time with God, your relationship with God, because God wants to be pursued. He doesn't, you know, he's, he stands at the door and knocks, you know, he waits for us to come sup with him. But at the same time, you know, we have that free will to not do that. And that's where we find ourselves down a path that leads to lack of discernment that leads to poor decisions that don't honor mm -hmm. God. And it just kind of mm -hmm. snowballs where you may not be able to see when it first started, but you do know that a pattern over time leads to a place where you can no longer uh, focus on God and you end up focusing on yourself and your circumstances. So, This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. Well, I do want to ask you real quick about your, your podcast, Alters. We talked about this before we got on. We absolutely loved it. Just our, our little group here at our church. And uh, the focus of Alters podcast was on revival. You went to certain spots around uh, uh, the, the different revivals where they happened and it was also a correlation with some of your sermons on altars, uh, specifically where you talked about uh, the altars in our life that we should dedicate to God, like our home, our city, our heart. Um, so I just had to ask you about this, uh, just where you kind of, how you started thinking about altars in a new way. And even for me, it changed my perspective. You know, we, we say, come to the altar at church and we think that, oh, well, the altar is the front of the church. Well, no, an altar is not a front of a church. An altar is a place where things die, where we sacrifice, you know, and in the old Testament, and now we, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so that term that we throw around in church really had new meaning for me by, by listening to your sermons and, and hearing the podcast. And so just talk about how your kind of passion for revival pushes you uh, and those around you to kind of expect more from just the day-to-day -day life, the day-to-day -day things that happen in ministry. Um, and just kind of like, where does that come where we, where we just lay everything down and seek God for, for more? Yeah. So the yeah, altars play multiple roles, you know, so that part of the role is sacrifice. It's a place where sacrifice is offered. But it's also, it's it's what they would do. They would build altars to, as one theologian called it, memorialize theophany. Mm. And the basic point of that is like whenever someone had a, a revelation and encounter with God, they would mark it physically. They wanted to be able to say, I met God here. And sometimes they would offer sacrifices of gratitude, just like, I just want to let the world know there's a God in Israel and I met him. And to me, when I was you know studying revivals, but before we did that revival tour, which was the Northeast, I did a revival tour around the world. And so I took my family to 17 uh, places where revivals have happened. And I didn't turn that into a podcast. I just kept it in my heart. I've preached on it a little bit. But um, so I was like, yeah, I was hungry to visit some of these altars. Where are these places where God's been poured out? And it, normally it was the sacrifice of prayer mm. that sort of ushered those things in. And so when you study those things, Teaching about revival and speaking about revival contains the seeds of revival. Mm. Hearing those stories make you want to see God do those things again. And I guess because I grew up in a, a became a Christian in a church where they emphasized this and believed in this, 
I think those seeds for whatever reason in God's grace found good soil in my heart. And I've just been pursuing that and seeking that out. So, yeah, I wanted to, and again, um, one of the great threats in our Christian lives is we forget, we forget who God is and what he's done. Yeah. And so, so much of our faith is simply remembering who God is and what he's done and talking about revival and some of these outpourings and encounters just reminds people this isn't it. This is not all God can do. When you read his word, when you study church history, and then you look at our current experience, it's like, did they have a different Bible than us? Do they know <laughs> yeah. they, they have the same Bible? Is Has God changed? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, then what's the problem? Then it's like, oh, aha, okay, here's the invitation then. Mm. I'm not desperate. I'm not seeking him. I've forgotten God. I've gotten complacent. I've gotten numbed. Okay, I need to, as it says in the book of Hosea, I need to break up the fallow ground. Then yeah. I need to begin to sow a different seed. I need to sow righteousness. And I need to seek God until he comes and rains righteousness on me. So that revelation leads to an awareness that puts you in a process of seeking to build fresh shoulders and ask God to come and meet you again. So, yeah, that's sort of how it happened. And um, one of the things that was a big revelation to me, I was in the Hebrides, which is my favorite revival mm. in church history. So I yeah. went to the Hebrides and, and met the folks who came to Christ in the revival. They're in their 90s now. It was just wow. extraordinary. One of the things I realized is that there was all these accounts of the Hebrides revival. People have written books about it, but they're all from the perspective of the person who was in the revival. And I thought, I wonder what Duncan Campbell, who was the person who was the public face of it, though he obviously didn't bring a revival, that was God. And then someone went to the missionary headquarters that Duncan Campbell served out of and realized Duncan Campbell had written his own accounts of what he thought was happening. And when I read those accounts, I realized Duncan Campbell seemed to believe that when there is fire on four kinds of altars, when there is prayer and hunger in four places, it creates an atmosphere that God cannot resist, that Satan cannot stop where the wow. presence comes in. And those were the four altars of the heart, individuals who were repentant and hungry, the home, families that cultivated not just Christian morality or Bible knowledge, but the presence of Christ himself in the home. Mm. Then churches that had a heart to pray, seek God, and welcome his presence. And then when enough churches in a region or an area got together, it seemed to sort of break through the principalities or the strongholds and almost create a vortex that pulled the power of God down out of hunger. So anyway, um, I was like, oh, that seems to be the key. And it sounds so simple. Passionate hearts, godly homes, praying churches, regional prayer. But I'll simply say this, go try and build that. <laughs> and you will see immediately how much there is resistance against those four altars. So yeah. I think our vision is to, you know, to, to, to let people know that, to inspire them to build that, and then to contend against the resistance that will inevitably try and shut that down. That's so good. I love that. And, you know, I found in my life too, you know, it's easy to pray for revival. God do it over there. But you know, why don't we pray God use me for revival? Because true revival is God taking the seat of what's going on in, in, in mm. doing it. And, and you can't yes, manufacture yes. revival, but at the same time, prayer is such a huge foundation, like you're saying for it. 
that we need to just be expectant for God to do something, to, to do more. And revival starts in our life too. And I can't remember who said this, but you know, someone drew a circle and said, God revive everything in the circle. I think that uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Michael L. Brown, I had him on said someone else said this, but anyway, it starts with us, you know, God revive yes. us first. And then like wildfire, it starts catching on with other people. And before you know it, you have a movement, you have passionate people, but we can't yes. just, we can't just be lackluster and say uh, prayer only without actually doing what God puts a vision and a, and a purpose on our heart to do. Um, yeah. So that, so that's, that's awesome. I love that. And um, uh, your sermons are still available about altars. They can check that out. Um, if they just uh, search your name, uh, I'll probably put it in the show notes too, but I would encourage everyone to check that out. So. Uh, I do want to move on to your book, Beautiful Resistance. I, I just recently read this and I loved it. I, okay. Your chapter, your chapter, Honor Must Resist Contempt. Um, mm. I, I That's love a how chapter you, for America. Yeah. I, I, I love how you lay out how contempt is anger directed at a lower status individual and how mm. contempt categorically devalues people and justifies anger. And we see this in society where battle lines are being drawn. And I think it's important to uh, be aware of this too, because it's easy, even as a church, to devalue those who believe differently than we do, even among, you know, Christianity, you know, oh, well, these people believe in the gifts, these people believe in end times differently than I do. Mm -hmm. And by, by putting people in these groups, we then devalue them, even if we don't logically think we are. And then we can start to push them aside or to just put everyone in the same bucket. Um, And this was so profound, I think, for, yeah, our culture right now is to think about what we're doing to people groups and to devalue them and treating them with contempt, because then we can start to, you know, push things onto them. We can start to not love them. Uh, And so I would love to hear. Uh, specifically, you know, we're not going to, you know, the culture is one thing, government's one thing, but uh, specifically for the church, how does the church rise above this temptation to devalue God's creation? Well, uh, again, it's if you contempt is so dangerous because it's 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 very very subtle in the beginning. Yeah, you know, it sort of creeps in like this. What an idiot! How could they believe that? Mm. You know, and before you know it, you, you've you've rebranded or recategorized people. Researchers at Harvard University found that when you categorize people as them, you draw a line outside of yourself for people who don't think like you or mm. like what you like, have your preferences and convictions. You actually stop allocating emotional resources towards them. Wow. So you actually take things like compassion and empathy. You cut them off categorically and you double down in showing it to people who are like you. And that to me is such a tragedy for the church because you can believe something about politics. I can say this as a bit of an Aussie outsider. American politics is 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 so religious. It's it's incredible. The rest of the world just sort of shakes their head and can't believe it. But that to me is like if you're a follower of Jesus, you have more in common with someone who completely disagrees with your politics than somebody who completely agrees with your politics but is not a Christian. But I'll mm. tell you this, the last election made us – You would never know that. You would never know that. And so that's how does that happen? Well, it happens because of that that psychological research. We think that the most important things are political things or cultural things. We therefore stop treating people with kindness and compassion, and then we're now demonizing other Christians who we have more in common with Mm. just because of secondary views instead of primary views. So we have to be aware of the temptations. We have to keep first things first, first priorities first, which, again, I, I love 
um, your emphasis on discernment. It's the great missing thing on planet Earth today, discerning mm. the times, discerning key moments. So we have to, yes, the number one, you've got to realize the trap. The enemy wants people divided. He wants us being condescending, losing our witness. But then, so how, how do you deal with it? And to me, that's what, um, that's the beauty of honor. Honor is the operating system of heaven. Mm. Honor, honor is different than glory. Glory doesn't require recognition. Mm. You know, like God is glorious whether you like him or not. The sun will keep shining whether you honor the sun or not. It just is. Yeah. You miss out if you don't recognize the glorious reality. But, yeah, honor is a little different in this. Honor has to be recognized. Honor is the voluntary choice to recognize the worth of something. Mm. And that's why it's the operating system of heaven, because you have to consciously choose to recognize the beauty and value of God. You have to consciously choose to recognize the beauty of somebody made in God's image, renewed in the image of the creator through Jesus, blood brought, spirit filled, brother and sister in Christ who you have spent eternity with. You've got to choose to recognize that thing. So I talk about viewing people not just through cultural lenses, but through the lens of honor. What's their story? What are their experiences? What have they been through? What's their destiny? What role do they play in the kingdom of God? And when you have that lens, yeah. almost like a filter, when you see them that way, you won't have contempt. You treat them differently. And honor, uh, honor gives you access to other people's anointings. Mm. You know, Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. But when you realize how costly it is and the value someone carries and you recognize it, you'll have access to the best of what it is that people bring. So to me, it's an opportunity for the church to repent from being taken captive by culture and secondary things and model an alternative community. It's really, it really is part of the need of the hour. Yeah. If you're not going to see it in the church, where are you going to see it? You know, where are you going to see people honoring each other? And so the church has to rise up and be that example. Yes, and yes. too often you look inside the church and it looks just like the world. And so that's mm. where churches have to really, you know, uh, just take inventory of what's happening in your culture, in your individual mm. lower C church culture, and then the big C church culture. How are we shifting against the norms, against the the, the mm. time that we're living in? Um, because God, God and his word you know, uh, written thousands of years ago is still the standard is still, you know, Matthew five, the, the Beatitudes, the, the things that are countercultural at the time yes. and are still countercultural yes. today are how yes. we should be living our lives and, and giving unto others and not just giving in <laughs> to yes. uh, the, the things that we want to do in our sinful nature. So could talk about that book uh, for a whole episode, but I, I do want to move on to the book I'm reading now called the intentional father. It's right here on the video. Yep. And I okay. uh, appreciate that. And I, I love this because my son's 13 right now. And so oh, it's really? kind of okay. perfect. You're, you're in that zone, man. In that zone. Yeah. And so I, I've been thinking about this whole thing and I love how you point out how raising sons with courage and character, it's not just something that is, is words for you. You live this out. This was a journey for you of discovery and realizing you had to be intentional with your son and how that led to Primal Path and now this book. And, and, and so just if you could share a little bit about that journey for you, what, what that was like, how you realized you needed to kind of step outside what you maybe knew cognitively and be intentional with the steps you were going to take to raise him into a man. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate you talking about the book because I, I do feel like, along with the theme of discernment, the great question is like, how do I raise up? a godly young man who is like Jesus in a culture like ours. Mm. 
Now, a lot of dads don't even ask that question. They're on autopilot. So number one, like you've got to ask the question. And then um, the second thing that will happen if you ask that question is like some feeling of like profound overwhelmness, like, oh, my gosh, I don't. The answer is, I don't know, <laughs> you know, and maybe you're like, oh, I'm going to do a camping trip or I'm going to have a few men write him a letter or whatever. And it's like, okay, so that's three days. What you do for the other six years? You know right. what I mean? It's like yeah. a long journey. So I began to ask the question, how do you do that? And then how have other societies done this? And I realized that, you know, we're one of the only societies that hasn't had a conscious agreed upon a pathway mm. of development for young people to move from adolescence into adulthood. So we, we have cultural rites of passage and transitions, go to high school, go to college. Uh, in the world, it's lose your virginity, get drunk, or get your first car or job or whatever. There's big cultural milestones, but what about in the kingdom of God? Mm. What about in development? So I basically read... Oh, gosh, so many books, so much literature on male formation. I tried to summarize it as clearly and as practically as I could. And then I spent six years walking my son through this. So it was a daily devotion. Uh, we did a thing every week called Man School, where I tried to basically just impart like the knowledge and skills he needed to survive in life. And then uh, closed it out after, you know, yeah, six years of this. Um, he did a gap year to sort of take what he'd learned and put it into real life, uh, test himself to see if he'd really learned it. And then we hiked 500 miles across Spain. We did the Camino wow. de Santiago, which is when we did it, was the equivalent of like walking through the middle of Arizona in the middle of the summer. <laughs> it was 110 degrees and we're wow. doing 15 miles a day. I mean, it was just wild. And at the end of it, yeah, a big ceremony of blessing, welcoming him back into the community of men. So. I actually just got a, a a voice memo from my son yesterday, just basically saying, thank you for, thank you, dad. This changed mm. me. This formed me. I'm so grateful. And I think he was with a bunch of people talking about father wounds and how broken people's homes were. And he kind mm. of realized like, hey, thanks for your intentionality. Like this actually blessed me more than it broke me. So I'm grateful for that. And I think intentionality is like, I don't know. It's not quite another word for discernment, but it's in the same category, which yeah. is like, don't wing it, wake up, figure it out and go after it. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, and something you want to hear from your son, you know, is, is to say, thank you. Even if in the moment they're like, why do we have to do this? You know, this is annoying, you know, <laughs> but in the, in the oh, long term. Yes, totally. Yeah. And I want to say, it's like, um, sometimes people say like, why'd you call it the primal path? I mean, that sounds like a steakhouse or something, you know, and it's like, <laughs> Because I was trying to motivate a 13-year-old kid. It wasn't written for like sophisticated adults. It wasn't right. done with like branding in mind. It was like, <laughs> exactly, how do I get a 13-year-old kid who would rather play video games or hang out with his mates? How yeah. do I win his heart and his attention and bring him into something? So That's great. At, at our church too, one of our elders, um, Luke, he just came up with a program we call LifePoint Lodge, and it's for boys 6 to 14. And it's basically kind of like Royal Rangers, Boy Scouts type of thing. But oh, okay. he, he yeah. saw a need for boys to to have male influences in their life, to learn about the wisdom of the Bible, to have practical, competitive, you know, engagement, to, to learn simple skills like making a pancake or making lemonade or whatever it is, you know, and and that's been awesome. We just started it uh, in, in 2021. And my point with that is that there's an overwhelming need for for men to be men, to, to teach godly principles, to, to encourage growth, because I've noticed that too, you know, you get to an age 
And then it's like, okay, am I a man now? The culture says I'm a man, but what really makes me a man? And I love how your book is not just a cookie cutter, 10 step program to raise a son. You know, it's, it's understanding the heart of your specific son and come up with a game plan with them around biblical principles. And I thought it was interesting too, how you noticed that, uh, for example, Mormons do this really well. They have a really good program Mm. with their sons uh, of initiation into manhood. And, And so what can we learn about the differences between a, a child just turning, you know, into an age versus a, a man having intentional steps, celebrating the process and kind of uh, realizing that, okay, I've done these things. Now I'm a man of God. Like, you know, that whole journey, what have you found that others do well? And kind of the, uh, some of the basic principles that you've kind of incorporated. Well, number one, I, I want to say like, you require this. You you need a father's blessing mm. or a mentor's blessing, but you, you basically what happens when you turn, you know, somewhere between eleven and fifteen, depending if you're an early or late bloomer, puberty kicks in. Your whole life changes. It's like you get a new a new world. It's like all of a sudden you're interested in the opposite sex. All of a sudden your body's changing. You're growing hair. You're getting larger. You're putting on muscle. Yeah, you're looking, you know, you're competitive, you're aware of group dynamics. I mean, and, and to be very, very honest, this is a exciting but confusing time. Yeah. And you don't know what to do with all of this energy. What do you do with your like sexual attraction? What do you do with your competitiveness? What do you do with the, you know, the chemicals now pumping through your body? And so what what societies have always said is like if you don't have guides that show you how to make sense and channel this energy, you will be damaged mm. and you will damage others. And so they've universally had a six-step process to work through this. Step one, when this when this began physically, they would separate them from the community and help them see uh, the joy rides over. You're not a kid anymore. Like something is going to change. So there's a death of childhood. Yeah. Then they bring them into a, you know, through some sort of rite of passage to help them realize in a significant, tangible, psychic way, there's a severing from your old way of life. Then they would give them formation in three areas primarily. Number one, the story of the community, so they know what it meant to be a part of a a tribe. Mm. Secondarily, um, the religion of the tribe, to know who its gods and creeds were. And then thirdly, the roles that were required of them in order to be a functional, respected member of the tribe. And they would take years working those things out. Here's our story. Here's our traditions. And then here's how to, you know, depending on the society you're in, hunt, fish, um, contribute, survive. Then they did a thing that they would call the ordeal. And the ordeal happened in late teenage years. And it was basically designed to help figure out, have you learned these things or is it all head knowledge? Mm. So, for example, in Australia, they would send out um, young Aboriginal men into the outback for up to six months to survive on their own. Wow. Let that let that sink in. <laughs> Um, you know, the Maasai tribe had to, a young man had to kill a, a lion with a spear up close. Wow. So these were, these were like, you know, for the Native American communities, uh, sometimes this was expressed through the vision quest. So you had to do very hard real world things. And if you did that and you returned, the community of men would acknowledge you're one of us. We've been through these same pathways and you've shown us that your energies have been directed, the wisdom has been applied, and now you're a safe member. Welcome back. 
And then they were celebrated by the community of men, and then they were invited back into larger societal life. Okay, so compare that to a young person growing up today. If dad's around, he's often busy or distracted. Yeah. So kids learn by primarily Google, which often leads to porn and violence and, you know, wildly ungodly things. Yeah. And then they're influenced by their friends. And then they go off to college and they throw off whatever restraint. 70% of kids who grow up in Christian homes lose their faith. Why? Because their parents probably didn't really give it to them and mm. satanic attack. And then they get into adulthood with what? A bunch of debt, not much wisdom, many times a lot of regret. And they're often wounded because nobody helped them figure out how to get through it properly. Yeah. So to me, this is it. so like, uh, you know, the Jewish community don't do this to the young people. Mormons don't do this to the young people. It's evangelicals who do this to the young people. And I'm trying to turn that around. I did watch that documentary too, the work you recommended. Uh, what that was think? Really, that was really powerful. Did, did because, it shake you? Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, you have these, you know, hardened criminals crying in front of each other. Uh, and it all, all of it goes back to, I remember one guy in there too. And he said that because his dad yelled at him to not come and fix the car with him, that shaped his identity. And he felt that he wasn't worthy, that he wasn't a man, that he couldn't help his father. Just one simple, you know, action. And that, that one thing really stuck with me on that documentary. And, And it really made me think, you know, our words have power. We have to have discernment with our words and how we spend our time and that intentionality as a father, it's a huge responsibility, but it's also something that like you're saying, if you don't take it Mm. seriously, you will put your son or, or daughter even on a path that will lead to, uh, you know, consequences that maybe even they didn't intend. And yeah, they're making these decisions, but what is their foundation in and how do we kind of stop that and look back and say, I'm going to be the father that God has called me to be. And I would say to anyone listening, you are, if you're the father to your kids, you're the right person, right? There's, we often, we often think that, well, maybe I wish I was like this person and this person, I wish I had it Mm. all together. Mm. You are the right person. God puts you in that position for a reason. And so it just takes intentionality to then discover who the, what type of father you can be because nobody's perfect, but you can take the right steps with books like the intentional father to put your kids on a new path. And that's kind of one of the last questions I had for you is, is what would you say to any parent who might think that, you know, it's too late, you know, their son's older than 13 now, or even like their daughter, you know, I, I lost time. Uh, they're making mistakes now, just kind of that whole cycle we get in. We tell ourselves that it's too late. I failed. I failed. I messed up. Um, what would you say for parents that are kind of on that thinking? Well, I mean, my, my book is not called the perfect father. Yeah. It's not even called the good father. It's called the intentional father. And to me, that's, that's the key word. Yeah. It is on purpose with loving intent moving towards someone or something deliberately. Yeah. And there's so much power in that. And it's funny, you know, I've had almost a thousand dads go through the primal path. And, you know, I mean, the, you know, the the book's done pretty well. It's had, it's had a large audience. And you're the only other person that I've talked to, and I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people that pointed out that same scene about that young man feeling wounded because mm-hmm. his dad didn't invite him. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing. It stood out to me, which was like the power of one encounter mm-hmm. to wound or restore. Yeah. And that's what I would say. It's never too late. And you have no idea how one act of forgiveness, asking for forgiveness of your kid could could open their heart and, mm-hmm. and do a 180 in your relationship. You have no idea how one kind word or one letter or one email 
could begin, a, open a door to a completely different relationship. So I would just say it's never too late if they're breathing. Yeah. They ache. They may still be mad. I'm not promising like a one-off fix, but I will say this. They ache for blessing and recognition. And you're the only one that can grant that. And if you do that, there can be a profound sense of healing and a deep, deep turning uh, of the heart towards one another. So I would just encourage you, you know, do it, move towards them. Think about, accept responsibility, Mm -hmm. um, cultivate love in your heart. Don't try and be a hero. I would say it's consistency, not intensity. If you've been a bit of a flake, one big thing, I just think this isn't it, but small, consistent things that you can actually do over the course of time can build a deep, deep relationship. So I'd say be intentional, know the power you carry as a parent, mm. and then in faith and repentance, move towards them. And just, I think you could be amazed at what God could do. Mm. Love that. Yeah. Know the power you carry as a parent is very important because I think a lot of times as a parent, we think that we're still 20 years younger than we are or 10 years younger than we are. We still put ourselves in like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm probably like 25 by now, aren't I? And it's like, oh, wait, no, I'm (laughs) way older. And so we have to realize who we, but then when we think back to our parents, you know, we kind of put them on this pedestal, not realizing that they were fallible that they had made mistakes, you know, and, and, and our kids put us on this pedestal and, and then we get scared. We get scared to mess up. We get scared to let them down. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we don't even try because it's better not to try than it is to fail, but that's not mm-hmm. what you're saying. And that's not what we should do is we need to be intentional, realize, go to your kids and, and apologize, say, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going through this process too. You know, I'm still being renewed to be like Jesus. And uh, I want to have better discernment. I want to cultivate our relationship. And I do take responsibility for the times that I didn't. Um, And that will lead to, like you said, not overnight success, but it will lead you down a path uh, of blessing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. So we are at the end of our time. I do uh, really enjoyed this conversation. And once again, the book is The Intentional Father we ended up talking about at the end. Uh, but where else can people connect with you and get the other resources that you have? Oh, it's just on social media. Um, it's J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N, John Tyson at um, yeah, Twitter, Instagram, places like that. Awesome. I'll put those in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. God bless you and your ministry and your family. Thanks, mate. Great chatting with you. Well, thank you, John, so much for coming on the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. It goes a long way, much more than traditional marketing. If you tell somebody about this podcast and help grow this community. You can also join the Facebook group to further the discussion on these podcasts. Go to Facebook and Eyes on Jesus podcast community. I also give you exclusive information about upcoming guests that you can't find anywhere else. And next week, I'm talking to Robbie Gallaty. He's a pastor and author. He has a really huge heart for mentorship and discipleship, and we're going to talk about that next week. So until then, go with God, grow in discernment, and keep your eyes on Jesus. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For more information on Discerning Dad, go to discerning-dad.com. Be sure to follow on all the social media platforms. Just search for Discerning Dad. Please share this podcast with a friend and leave an honest review on whichever platform you listen. Feel free to send any comments, suggestions, questions, or prayer requests at discerningdad@outlook.com. Until next time, keep fighting the good fight.